So we're in part two of our series called Outrageous Grace, the Runaway Prophet. Last week, you may remember, we left Jonah feeling pretty good. God had said, go east, young man, go east. And he said in reply, I'm going west. Oh, God, I'm going west. And he thought he had it made. He was comfortable. But we're going to continue on. There's a Canadian poet uh, whose name is Ethelwyn Weatherald. Uh, she lived in the earliest part of the 20th century. And in just a few short sentences in a poem titled, Prodigal Yet, she captures the plight of a straying young person who isn't quite ready to give up the high life and come back home from the far country. Let me read this poem to you, part of it. Muck of the sty, reek of the trough, blackened my brow where all might see. Yet while I was a great way off, my father ran with compassion for me. He put on my hand a ring of gold. There's no escape from a ring, they say. He put on my neck a chain to hold my passionate spirit from breaking away. He put on my feet the shoes that miss no chance to tread in the narrow path. He pressed on my lips the burning kiss that scorches deeper than fires of wrath. He filled my body with meat and wine. He flooded my heart with love's white light. Yet deep in the mire was sensual swine. I long, God help me, to wallow tonight. Muck of the sty, reek of the trough, blacken my soul where none may see. Father, I am yet a long way off. Come quickly, Lord. Have compassion on me. When I saw that poem the first time, I thought to myself, you know, not every prodigal is ready to come home. They have to reach a certain point before they can turn around. And sometimes, in our great compassion, we go and try to get them back way too soon before they're ready. Now, I have a feeling that today, in speaking this message about prodigals, that there are some of you that have prodigals in your life. They're in your family. Some of you have loved ones who have somehow drifted away from the Lord over the years. Some of them grew up in Sunday school, maybe even Sunday school right here at First Lutheran Church. Some of them were confirmed here. Some of them even went away to Christian colleges or universities. They were raised to love Jesus. Some of them one time could quote, tens, if not hundreds, of different Bible verses. Some of them may have been leaders in the youth group here at one time. Some may have even gone on a mission trip. Some maybe became preachers or missionaries. But somewhere along the line, something happened. And some of them very slowly but surely drifted away from God. Some of them just turned around and got out of town as fast as they could. Some of them today are far from God, and if we really knew what some of those prodigals in our life were doing today, it would shock us deeply. But this morning, as we begin to think about our prodigal friends, maybe our prodigal parents, or our prodigal sons and daughters, I want you to remember one key point. This is one really good key point. No matter, how, no matter what you may think about the way your friends are living, 
no matter how angry you may be at the choices they've made, the root problem is never on the outside. The problem is always on the inside. The problem with the prodigal is always a problem of the heart. Now, I find that to be really good news. I'm going to tell you why. Because there's only one person in this entire universe who can change the heart. He is the world's greatest heart surgeon. That's who we're here today to worship. The one who can change even the most prodigal of hearts, who can give us a new heart. Now, I know that I could stand up here and preach a thousand sermons. We could sing a thousand songs. We could attend a thousand church services, but apart from the Lord, it would do absolutely no good at all. It's not outer change that we make, we need, but we need deep inner transformation of our lives that only the Holy Spirit working on God's behalf can accomplish. Maybe like me, you have tried to rescue a prodigal. You've tried to bring them back home. You've nagged at them. You've complained to them. You've yelled at them. You've threatened them just to get them to come back. If there's something maybe I've learned in life, it's this. Sometimes in our attempt to reach out to the prodigals, we intervene way too soon. We intervene before they're ready to come home. We intervene before they have come to their senses. Remember that story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15? After he'd wasted his whole life on that wild living, and in fact, I love this translation from the message. It says, he was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. Now, if you saw a guy on his hands and knees in front of a hog trough who would have loved to eat those corn cobs in that slop, you would probably say, man, that guy is ready for a new life. And I would say, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. See, in the story, what did the father do? The father stayed at home. He waited for his son to return before he ever did any running. When he, was, when he saw him far off, he, that's when he began to run. Now, what if the father in that story that Jesus told, what if he had decided to go after his son and tried to bring him back even one day early? What would have happened? Well, I don't know for sure, but the son might have said, you know, if you'd only left me alone for one more day, I could have turned it around because I was on my hands and knees investing in pork bellies. Maybe not. You know, we may think that some people have hit rock bottom when they're still scheming to get out of their problems. I'm going to spend a week with people like that. There are some of them that they're guys, 5,200 inmates, average sentence, 88 years. A lot of those guys have not yet hit rock bottom. Now, we would think because they're in prison, doing hard time, that they were ready to be rescued. But I'm going to tell you, they don't call them convicts for nothing. Their entire life is a con. 
They're looking for one more way, one more way to solve their own problems. And as long as that lying and scheming and that deceiving continues, the best thing we can do for prodigals like that is just to pray that the Holy Spirit would bring them to their senses and then just wait patiently for the time they choose to come back home. Now, underlying this is, are, are two very important pieces of theology. This is the first thing on your outline, I think. Two bits of very important theology. One of them, you see it there. God knows us better than we know ourselves. You know that? God knows you better than you know yourself. And the second thing is God knows how to reach you at just the right time. The same thing applies for the prodigals. You've got somebody that's wandered away from the Lord. God knows them. God knows them. And he knows what it's going to take to reach them. And he's going to reach them at just the right time. Now, sometimes people say to me, do you think God can speak to me today? And I always say, hey, don't worry about it. God's got you on speed dial. And the day that God decides to dial you up, I don't know when it's going to be. It could be any time, day or night. But when God comes calling, you will not be able to put him on call waiting. Jonah is about to learn this lesson the hard way. Remember last week when we left the runaway prophet? He seemed to be on top of the world. He was on a boat to Tarshish, running away from the Lord. When the Lord said, go to Nineveh, he said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to Tarshish. So we, he went down to Joppa. Remember last week he said that whenever you sin, you never go up. You're always going down. Down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the water, down into the fish. That's the way it always works. Maybe some of you don't know where Joppa is. Well, then probably you won't know where it is after I tell you. It's just a little bit south of modern-day Tel Aviv. So the next time you look at a map, Tel Aviv, oh, that's where Joppa was. Okay, now isn't it amazing again? I, I think about this. As I, I listen to Nancy read the story again today. Isn't it amazing how when you want to run away from God, there's always a boat waiting? Isn't it amazing that whenever you want to sail the other direction, Satan always has a boat that's going where you want to go? Satan's ships are parked right outside the church. And they're always ready to take on another passenger. You never have to go standby on one of Satan's boats. He's got a place reserved with your name on it. So what happens? Jonah pays his fare boards the ship, goes down below to take a nap. It was working out just like he planned. I mean, consider this, a comfy Mediterranean cruise. Soon he would be in one of the most beautiful cities in Spain, Tarshish. There he could live far, far away from the presence of the Lord. Or so he thought. That's where we left Jonah last Sunday. It was a pretty picture of a pretty self-satisfied guy who seemed to actually have gotten away with it. He actually got away with some disobedience. That's the way it seems. 
But you know, whenever you read the sto- a story in the Bible where it seems that somebody's about to get away with something, there's this interesting little word that you're hoping for that says, but. <laughs> I'm going to run away from God, but here comes God. There's always a but in the story, isn't there? God will never let his straying children live in sin forever. Here's why. Here's my big major point. It's because no one gets a free ride on the ship of fools. You get that? No one gets a free ride on the ship of fools. Now, we're going to take a look at the process that God uses uh, to begin bringing Jonah back home. And if we understand this is how Jonah works, or God works with Jonah, we're going to understand how God works with us, and we're going to understand how God really works with those people that in your mind today, you already know who these prodigals are. Here's the very first thing God does. He sends storms to get our attention. Sends a storm to get our attention. Nancy read before, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own little G God. Little G God. It must have been a bad storm because these were seasoned sailors. And if this scared seasoned sailors senseless, it must have been some sensational storm. Now try stringing all those S's together one time without making a mistake. And guess what? They begin the very first interfaith prayer meeting in the entire Bible. Each guy, though, is praying to his own Little G God. You know people that pray to a a little G God? Well, when that doesn't work, what do they do? They start throwing stuff overboard. They start throwing their cargo overboard. Now, we all know that life can turn on a dime. God knows exactly how to get our attention. Our God is an amazingly creative God. He will send a storm in a variety of ways. I mean, he can send a storm of adverse circumstances. He can send a storm of sudden death. He can send a storm of sudden illness. He can send a storm of trouble in your church. He can send a storm in the form of financial collapse. He can send a storm of a desperately sick child. He can send the storm of a career implosion. And remember, friends, when you're in the storm, you tend to be fearful, angry, and frustrated. No doubt about it. It's only later that you realize that that storm you were in was severe mercy from the Lord. You remember that word from last week I talked about? Severe mercy. So if you want to know what severe mercy is, go back and read Romans chapter 1 where it says God gave them over. It was for their best. I mean, that's always step one for the prodigal. It always takes some storm, it seems, to get their attention. And I can't tell you how many people I have prayed that God would send a storm into their life. And I'd hope that you would too. Here's the second thing. He allows other people to suffer because of our sin. See, Jonah was the one who was sinning. 
And yet his foolish rebellion hurt everybody else around him. That's why sometimes when people who divorce say, oh, this has got nothing to do with the kids. You know the Greek word for that, don't you? Baloney. Or the Hebrew, whatever. Hogwash. But see, friends, understand this. We never sin alone. We don't sin in some little vacuum. We may be alone when we sin, but we never sin alone. Our sin, our compromise, our deceit always injures our spouse, our children, our friends, our family, our workplace, our church, whatever. Every step out of the will of God hurts people around us. Here's the third thing. He sends someone to challenge us. Some of you that have been prodigals and found your way back home, it'd be kind of interesting to hear your testimony about what that storm was that got your attention. I bet you you'd have some interesting stories. And you suddenly realize that what you'd been up to, which you thought only you had been up to, man, it had, it had affected a lot of people. And then maybe in the midst of that, God brought someone into your life who challenged you, who straightened you out, who caught you short, who looked in the eye and said, you know better than that, cut it out. Or they brought somebody into your life who challenged you with their love and their mercy and their willingness to draw you back in and forgive you and accept you. You think about this story, man, as this ship is moaning and groaning under the weight of the wind, the waves, they're heaving this cargo overboard like crazy in a desperate attempt to save the ship. Where's Jonah? He's down below. He's down below, sleeping. You'd think he'd be up on the deck helping a row. You'd think he'd be up there throwing stuff overboard. Nah. He's taking a nap down below. Do you ever wonder how a man can take a nap in the middle of a storm? I'll tell you how. The answer is pretty simple. The devil also has sleeping pills. The devil has sleeping pills. He knows how to put you to sleep while the world crashes in all around you. You don't think that's true? How else can you explain politicians who break the law and then lie with impunity. How else do you explain parents who abandon their children? I mean, the devil can put us to sleep while the ship is sinking or the house is burning or the world is falling apart. But boy, look what happens next. The captain went to him and said, well, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your little G God. Do you notice that? Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. At this point, the captain, who obviously is a pagan, has more faith than the prophet has. More faith than Jonah. Seeing the danger, he wants Jonah up praying. Now, here's the point. The world doesn't want our sermons. You know that? Oh, it would be so wonderful if they'd come to church and hear our pastor preach. They don't want to hear me preach. 
They don't want to hear our sermons. Do you know what the world wants? I think the world wants our prayers. The world wants our prayers. I mean, just think about that for a moment. That may be a strange thought. They don't really want our sermons. They want our prayers. And I say that because I think the world, generally speaking, does not care about what we say or what we do at 4600 Texas Boulevard, Texarkana, on a Sunday morning. I mean, for many people, Sunday mornings seem boring and mostly irrelevant, which is why this Sunday and every Sunday, most people will not be in any church anywhere. This is true of every city across America, including those who live in the Bible Belt and even those who consider themselves to be the belt buckle on the Bible Belt, the state of Texas. It doesn't make any difference whether we are talking about Seattle or Atlanta or Dallas or Chicago or New York or Las Vegas or even Texarkana or even Hooks, Texas. On any given Sunday, most people don't go to church anywhere. They stay home. They stay in bed. They wake up late. They go out for breakfast. They take a walk. They read the paper. They go fishing. They go hunting. They watch a little TV. And in general, they are happy as clams at high tide, totally unaware that the church even exists. And they won't change no matter how much we preach against them. A few years ago, I was doing a church consultation out in Oregon. And I asked about the spiritual temperature of the region around the church that I was consulting. I remember this as clear as a bell. The pastor told me that while most people who lived around his church, they, you know, while most of them didn't go to church, it would be wrong to call them hostile. This is what he said. They don't care enough to be hostile. Most of the people who live around our church are uninterested in anything that we do or what we have to offer. Now, I know that's kind of stunning to some of you. Well, why wouldn't they want to be here? Because they're prodigals. Front door of a church, which seems very inviting to many of you, is not very inviting to a prodigal. See, the world doesn't care about our religion. But I sincerely believe that the world cares about our prayers. You don't think 9-11 causes some people to go back to pray? You know why people were really upset the other day? You know why when they were not allowing certain clergymen and evangelicals to be at that site? There are a lot of people who said, no, we need them there because we need people to pray. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that get pretty cranky when Governor Perry says we need to take three days to pray for rain. I don't care what the drive-by media says. He hit the nail on the head. There are people out there who could care less about church, but they want Christians to pray. And they want them to pray for things like safety, peace. They want you to pray for things like rain. See, even if the world doesn't want our religion, I still contest that they, they really want our prayers. 
I mean, after all, I, I think if we, we live like we're supposed to live, you know, they, they know that we claim to know the living God. We claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We claim to have access to the God of the universe. And I think, by and large, the world knows this. And even if it doesn't want our religion or our denomination or whatever, it desperately wants our prayers. Now, you can argue with me about this later. That's okay. I, I, uh, that thought didn't fall off Mount Sinai. Uh, that's just what I think. I think the people of the world around us are saying, can't you see what's happening? I mean, my marriage is falling apart. My kids are in trouble. I've lost my job. My husband has cancer. We can't pay our bills. You say you know God. If you do, wake up and pray for us. And I'll say it again. You know, we can preach a thousand sermons, and I'm not sure that a lot of this world really cares. But I still believe in the deepest part of my heart that what they want us to do, though, is pray. Now, we often wonder what it really takes to reach this generation. What does it really take to reach a bunch of people who seem to be so turned off by God in some respects and are so turned off by what we might call religion? You know, if we wait for people to come to church, we're going to wait for a long time. But there's a simple question that I want to share with you this morning that I think can open up spiritual conversations like you've never thought about before. It's just six words. Y'all can even memorize this one, I'm sure. Here are the six words. How can I pray for you? You would be amazed at the doors that will open when you do that. Tommy, do you remember, I think, Jimmy, you were there and Muriel there. We were eating lunch one day over, uh, where do you guys like to eat? Outback Steakhouse. Do you remember that day when the waitress came to the table and I said to that young girl, you know, when you come over later and you bring our food, we're going to pray. And I said to her, how can I pray for you? Do you remember what happened? broke down in tears. Well, I felt bad enough. I got up and I put my arms around her and I, I kind of apologized. I, I didn't really mean to do that. And then she kind of blubbered to me that she and her, I don't know if it was her boyfriend or live-in or who, it didn't really make any difference, had had a blow-up that day. And I said, I'm going to pray for you. You know, that melted that girl's heart. And I'm not telling you that she showed up in our church. But she may have gone back to her own church. That's okay. It's okay. We don't carve notches on our Bible. I wonder how often you could say that to somebody this week. How can I pray for you? I'm always amazed that when people call the church office and they say, Pastor, uh, you know, will you pray for so and so and such and such? And you say, Sure, let's do it right now. They kind of go, uh, uh, What? What? <laughs> They're almost taken aback. How can I pray for you? You know, they can do without our sermons, but you know, they can't do without our prayers. And you know something? If, if they get our prayers, they might someday actually listen to our sermons. 
Well, that's part one of how God pursues prodigals. Part two, if you come back next week, we're going to discover that being swallowed by a big fish may not or may actually be the best thing that ever happened to you. Let's pray. Father, there are so many people around us that are lost. Whether they are prodigals, that if they've, they've walked completely away from you, we don't know. That, that's not ours to judge. But maybe they've gotten just far away. Maybe they're just ready to come back. They're not going to show up in church. They may not respond to our invitations. But Lord, even as your disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to move beyond praying for ourselves and be able to say to someone else, how can I pray for you? And Lord, I just pray that this week, somehow, sometime, some way, somewhere, that all of the people that are here today that have heard this message would have someone walk across their path and that we would have our eyes open enough to sense that these are people in need and then just to say those six simple words that can make such a difference. How can I pray for you? Lord, we pray that in your precious Son's name. Amen.